Hi, everyone. It's Sarah. I'm so excited about this little present that we're dropping into your feed this week. I was a guest on a very cool podcast called Failure to Adapt, which is hosted by children's and YA author Maggie Takuda Hall and comedian Red Scott. And the idea behind this podcast is so cool. They take books that have been adapted into film and television shows, and they read the books and then watch the films or television shows or short series and do an episode about comparing, contrasting, talking about what works, what doesn't, what they love, what they didn't. And it's so fun. Their first season has some very, very cool guests, some very, very cool books. And their second season, which is right now, is all Jane Austen all the time. So it really worked out well uh, for me because they sent an email and asked me to guest on the show and they let me choose what I wanted to do. And I was so excited to choose Emma and Clueless. Um, Emma is my favorite Austen novel. You'll hear more about that in the podcast. And Clueless is... I think one of a, gosh, there are a handful of adaptations that are truly perfect, and this one is surely one of them. Anyway, I'm so excited to share this podcast, which was a really delicious find for me in 2022 with all of you, and I hope you'll enjoy this special episode of Failure to Adapt featuring me talking about Emma and Clueless, and um, you'll hopefully like and subscribe as soon as you're done listening to the episode. Thanks to Maggie and to Red for having me. I had the most fun. Enjoy, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Failure to Adapt, the show where we talk about stories that change from one form to another. I'm Maggie Takuda-Hall. I'm a children's and young adult book author. And I'm Red Scott, a stand-up comic and podcaster. And today, we have a very special guest. She's a New York Times, Washington Post, and USA Today bestseller, the author of sexy historical romance novels that have been translated into more than 25 languages. She's the god of the McLeanaverse and a tireless advocate for the romance genre, the co-host of the Faded Mates podcast, and her newest book in the Hell's Bells series, Heartbreaker, is out now. Sarah McLean, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here and... Honestly, I just have to say this morning, I told my daughter that I was going to be on this podcast with you, Maggie, and it is the most exciting thing I have ever done because I think, as you know, (laughs) also an octopus is like the biggest favorite (laughs) picture book of our childhood here in this house. I love that it is only in your house, New York Times bestselling author Sarah McLean, (laughs) where my book is more exciting. (laughs) Oh, my daughter is very excited about this whole thing. And so am I, I should say. um, (laughs) Well, she can't wait for all the stories. I'm so glad. So you better make it good, Takuda Hall. (laughs) (laughs) No promises. As my stepdad always says, don't get excited. Um, But we are talking about awesome source material today. We are discussing Jane Austen's Emma and Amy Heckerling's Clueless. When you emailed me and you said you were doing a season about Jane Austen, and I actually have questions about how that happened. <laughs> I mean, instantly, I was like, can I do Clueless? <laughs> has, somebody, has somebody cooler than me picked Clueless? First of all, there's no one cooler than you. Second of all, we were so jazzed. It's so fun when we email someone or like, what do you want to do? And they like immediately know. That's the best. Like, yes, we're all in this together. It's going to be so much fun. And yes, it is true that I did bully Red into doing an entire Jane Austen season. <laughs> Bullying would have been fine. You actively tricked me. You you actively 
told me falsehoods to get me to engage in an entire season of Jane what Austen. What if we did Bridget Jones's diary? <laughs> Her pitch was that it would be less reading. It's true. Oh, that's a lie. Yeah, no, that's not a true thing. <laughs> that is not a true thing. It is the most reading we have done for a season, as far as I can tell. We have read one book. Or for at like least five it feels pride. that way. Yeah, <laughs> one book for one or for five Pride and Prejudice episodes. I think she knew it was too long because she started the chapter numbers over repeatedly. <laughs> like She was like, <laughs> if it gets over 20, people are just going to stop. We'll go back to one here. <laughs> the real fast one I pulled on Red was making him watch Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is as long as the audiobook of Pride and Prejudice. And I was like, we'll save time. That was a lie. Yeah, that's a that's double. Did you did you do that first? We didn't do it first. Okay, so you'd already read Pride and Prejudice. You didn't have to do both for one episode. I didn't have to do no, 26. No, what would it have been? Yeah, 26 hours of prep for one podcast, fortunately, that time. Yeah, that would have been rude. <laughs> Anyway, but today we are here to talk about clever, handsome, and rich women making matches and maybe not doing so great. Sarah, what is your relationship to Emma and to Clueless? So I'm a historical romance novelist, and many people don't think of it this way, but Jane Austen is sort of the primordial contemporary romance novelist. She was writing contemporary romance novels in the Regency, and all of her books, or most of her books, are very traditional romance novels. They have beat for beat um, the the construction of the modern romance. And um, so it will come as no surprise that I was a really big Austen fan. And I think that largely comes from the BBC Pride and Prejudice, thanks to Colin Firth. And then I, I backed into the books themselves. And Emma is, in fact, my favorite Austen novel, which oh. will surprise many, many people and I get a lot of disdain for. So, you know, let's just do it. <laughs> disdain for? <laughs> Why would you get disdain for this being your favorite one? Well, I'll tell you, not long after I published my first book, which was, in fact, about young women during the Regency, I was invited to speak to the Connecticut chapter of JASNA, which is the Jane Austen Society of North America. And that is exactly what you would imagine it to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I went there, and it was a very, very nice tea hosted by a roomful of women of a certain age. And I gave a presentation about, you know, my book and Austen and how Austen had inspired me as a romance novelist and how Austen was the kind of primordial romance novelist. And at the end, I took questions and a little hand went up and an elderly woman said, what is your favorite Austen novel? And I said, Emma. And there was a gasp <laughs> throughout the room. And, and I knew I had done something terribly wrong. There's only four of them. How can you be surprised by any answer to that? And this woman's reply, dripping with disdain, was, well, you'll grow out of that. <laughs> I'm not surprised at a gathering of of enthusiasts who have all read Jane Austen novels uh, would be... People who enjoy <laughs> taking people down with quips in public. That's the part that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> but he, Joe 
jokes on her because I haven't grown out of it. <laughs> I still can't finish Persuasion. So I, which, yeah. you know, I know is a very, that is a big disappointment to a lot of people for when I say that, when I confess that in public. Um, but if any of you out there can't finish Persuasion, you're not alone. Um, and I really love Emma. I think it's so fun. And I think she's doing, I think Austin is doing a really cool thing here. And she, it was her first and she, or it was early and she's telling the story of young, young women causing trouble. <laughs> Idle women causing trouble. Well, speaking of young women who cause trouble, what's your relationship to Clueless? Oh, Man, it's the greatest. I mean, <laughs> I replied to your email instantly because it's so fun and it's so funny and it does so much of the work that Emma's doing in a like modern way. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but when I rewatched it for this and it's just, and it's such a great adaptation. I mean, it really is. Be for be the characters are all fabulous. It feels it makes Emma feel so relevant today and I feel that way about most of Austin, like it just all feels so relevant always and modern always. But gosh, no, Clueless is the best. And also Paul Rudd doesn't age, which is real weird. <laughs> no, he's <laughs> looked the same since this role. So, yeah, <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> Red, what about you? What's your relationship to Emma and to Clueless? So I had, I'm 90% sure this is a true memory. I saw Clueless for the first time on a bus on a high school band trip? <laughs> I think that's correct. And it was a great choice. I very much enjoyed it. And I saw it a couple of times in high school. And I would have sworn I've seen it since then. But I got so much out of watching it that I clearly have not watched it since I was 25 at the latest. Like, there's just so many jokes that I just didn't get <laughs> when I was younger. And, I mean, it's Clueless is a perfect movie. Yes. Yeah. As an adaptation, it's surprisingly faithful given how much of a departure it is. How, or Right? It's surprisingly faithful given how much of a modernization it is. But it makes a lot of choices that I feel like people were scared to do for Pride and Prejudice adaptations that I just felt like were chef's kiss. And I could not be more impressed with this movie being so good and also honoring the source material uh, so well. Despite the fact that Emma, which I have now read, uh, is my second favorite Jane Austen novel I've read, I would say. I would say <laughs> it's probably my favorite book that was published in 1815. Wait, is it your second <laughs> Jane Austen book? I've, yeah, I've read Pride and Prejudice. you read this, Pride and Prejudice at now. This point. <laughs> and here we are. Pride and Prejudice, it took me a long time to get into. I haven't read a lot of books from that era. And I really just thought it was the language. I mean, it took me probably like two thirds of the novel to start getting into it, but I did, and ultimately I enjoyed it. And coming into this, I was like, all right, I got the language. It's going to be great. I'm going to have a great time. Uh, and I have finished it, and I'm still waiting for it to sort of catch. Uh, I think this is just your thing about not liking matchmakers that you texted me about. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, I'm not sure Jane Austen likes them either. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I dislike the character... Emma. I don't think that's the cause of my dislike of the entire novel. Uh, you know what? And dislike is too strong a word. There were still some quips that I enjoyed. I just never felt a pull to get me through the rest of the book at any point. This is this is the longest book that I that I 
would have DNF'd. Have ever read. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. No, no, but I, I definitely would not have finished this if I did not have a podcast. I was going to say, we read the Ludlum Born Identity book. You have read longer books. No, what I mean is that it feels very oh, long. Oh, yeah. No, I know. You know, That's I get what... it. Austin can feel real long if you're not in it. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I've actually spent a lot of time. Anytime where I was not reading Emma, I was trying to decide which of those I liked less. <laughs> so what about you, Maggie? I liked Emma better than Pride and Prejudice. I think I'm more familiar with Pride and Prejudice. And so nothing about the novel could surprise me. Mm. Like, even though it was my first time reading it for the podcast, I have taken in so much Pride and Prejudice media that by the time I got to the book, I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You're prideful. You're prejudiced. You're both like that. We get it. Uh, and Emma <laughs> was right there in felt, the title. Yeah, felt much more fresh to me. And I really enjoy characters where like basically Mostly everyone in Emma's like a good person who is just like kind of a ding dong. Mm -hmm. I love books like that. Like, I think that's like very funny and endearing to me. And I liked the lack of like true villainry in the book. It's mostly just people who are just doing normal people stuff. And in that way, it felt like you said, Sarah, like a very normal contemporary romance novel where it's like there aren't huge forces like making bad things happen it's just people's folly and like miscommunications and i thought that was a gas and clueless i saw in the theater multiple times it is filmed where i grew up wouldn't you have been like 10 uh i was in fifth grade okay wow okay yeah, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I just know it was fifth grade because that was uh, the year I started getting a clothing allowance and I spent it all at Contempo Casuals. <laughs> yep. Knee-high socks. Knee-high socks, mini Minis. skirts, those little like uh, newsboy hats. Mm -hmm. Like I was in it. I wanted to look like Dion. <laughs> so much of this movie is filmed in places where I grew up. Like the um, her failed driving test is on... One of the cross streets where my house was when I was at that age, the like big fountain where she realizes she's in love with Josh that goes off was on the way to my grandparents' house. And the fairy tale cottage that she walks by while she's having her little ponder wander was about like five or six blocks from their house as well. The West Side Pavilion is the mall I grew up going to. So when I saw it, I saw it as like instructive. <laughs> <laughs> That's the wrong instinct. I know. Wrong instinct. But like, I really loved that movie. I have to ask you about this because I've been texting you about it. Yeah. You say, I saw it as instructive. Yeah. In 2022, I feel like what percentage of you still feels like it's kind of instructive? Like, that's still like what you're aspiring to. The clothes. The clothes are still instructive. percent. There's an outfit that Dion wears where it's like maroon, but it has like a big white Peter Pan collar and it's a mini skirt and it, it separates. I would still wear that outfit right this very second. To me, that is still like, that's what cool people look like. <laughs> I'm I'm always hunting down that look. <laughs> yeah, I did recognize a lot of this fashion from the graphic novel Squad by Maggie Takuda Hall and Lisa Sterl. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> yeah, Lisa and I actually did talk about it. And Clueless is one of the like source material pieces. Like I don't stand by sort of like the moral way of this universe necessarily. Like it's a little racist and it's a little sexist and it's fat phobic. And like it reminds me of some of the worst impulses of my teen years. 
But this movie still fucking slaps. The fashion is amazing. And I will never say that this is not a perfect movie. Same. I mean, the other thing that's wild about that movie is it is so of a time. Mm -hmm. There's at one point where somebody's referred to as a Cato. And it's like, (laughs) come on. Like, you really, nobody is going to know what that means now. But it's still like, they're all so, it all feels still relevant in a lot of ways. In the same way that Austin was doing the same thing, right? There are a lot of references in Austin novels to contemporary stuff that we don't understand in 2022. And I just... I just think Amy Harkeling, like, she understood the brief. Yes, she understood the assignment. And I do wonder if choosing Emma instead of Pride and Prejudice or instead of Persuasion, the kind of, like, two that are often held as, like, these are the great Austin novels, choosing the more playful one, I wonder if that gave her more room and if that took less of the pressure of, like, being super faithful to the point of lack of invention, like to the point of limiting her creativity. So I want to know, do you all have favorite quotes from either the book or the movie or favorite moments that you just feel like we should remember? It's hard for me with the movie because I have the whole movie memorized. <laughs> I Say say the obvious one. I, I avoided. <laughs> I avoided the obvious one so that you could have it. There's several obvious ones as far as I'm concerned, but you're a virgin who can't drive. Yes. That is the one I did not choose. <laughs> is the sickest burn of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> There's something very satisfying at seeing words that like have no power over you now, but you just remember it being like the two worst things somebody could say about you. They're they're 16. Like, these are both fun things. (laughs) 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 But, like, just the verb she's putting into it is just like, I'm going to say the thing that's so low you never thought I would say it right now is just, it's beautiful. I love it. It's so good. And Brittany Murphy was a, is an absolute gift as. Oh, my God. (sighs) As Harriet Smith. (laughs) Yes. Just incredible. Well, my favorite quote from Clueless is Cher saving herself for Luke Perry. (laughs) 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 Which, again, speaks to my, like, love of the 90s references in this movie. But also, also I really love it because I think, again, like, looking at it through the lens of Emma, you know, it's such a perfect translation of who Emma is in the novel to who Cher is in 1995. (laughs) One of my favorite things is characters who don't have the schooling or conceptual knowledge to explain a concept in the way that it should, but they get to the right point. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So the line, it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty after giving (laughs) this huge speech that just marks her as completely ignorant of everything that's going on and just a complete (laughs) lack of respect or context for the disaster and then to end up and you're like wait a minute yeah it doesn't say rsvp on the statue of liberty that is correct (laughs) that was an incredible line from the movie and then from the book i do not consider its length as particularly in its favor (laughs) from the book i have 
I lay it down as a general rule, Harriet, that if a woman doubts as to whether she should accept a man or not, she certainly ought to refuse him. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. And like, frankly, I know it proves to be the wrong advice in this book, but not generally speaking, terrible advice. No. I I like that line. And I'm sorry, I have another one from Clueless, (laughs) the movie, because it is one of my favorite movies. But um, if it's a concussion, you have to keep her up. Ask her questions. What's seven times seven? Stuff she knows. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have an Emma quote that I use like really regularly in my life, which is it was a delightful visit. Perfect in being much too short. (laughs) 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 That is a solid one. It's like a great moment. Also from this, I use space cadet as an insult a lot. And I was like, oh, this is this is where I got that. This is where. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's, it's just an aside at some point. And I was like, oh, that's very sad. Oh, right. I still I still use that. Okay. I also um, really love Murray's little speech, his little monologue about uh, misogyny. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I... I'm a purist in that I really love when Knightley says, men of sense, whatever you may choose to say, do not want silly wives. (laughs) Because, again, it's that sort of matchmaking. Emma's so wrong all the time. And Knightley really installed my daddy kink, which maybe we'll get into. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) Knightley is really hot. It's a problem. Yeah, because he's so stern. He's such a stern daddy. We'll get into it. Um, (laughs) I have a romance podcast, so, you know. (laughs) So daddies are fine. There are people who love daddies and there are liars. You know what I mean? (laughs) Put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. (laughs) So before we get into it, in case any of our listeners have not read the book Emma or for some reason have not watched the movie Clueless, we are going to do 30 second comprehensive summaries starting with bestselling author Sarah McLean. You will be giving us a 30-second summary of Jane Austen's Emma. Sarah, are you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one. Beautiful and arrogant, or beautifully arrogant, Emma Woodhouse lives in Surrey in 1815 with her hypochondriacal slash very needy dad. And after successfully introducing two people who marry, she now thinks herself a superior matchmaker. Emma sets her sights on a local adult orphan, Harriet Smith, who's (laughs) caught the eye of a local hot farmer, but... Emma wants a notch in her matchmaking belt and so convinces Harry not to go for the farmer, but for the local vicar, Mr. Elton. Emma's brother-in-law, Mr. Knightley, thinks all of this is a very bad idea. He thinks everything Emma does is a very bad idea. Emma then proceeds to wreak havoc on this society, missing the truth about two men, spreading wild rumors about a piano, nearly ruining Harriet's chance at love, being super mean to a very sweet and silly spinster, and ultimately taking her knocks, but only once Knightley sets her straight in a very stern daddy-type way. Everything is sorted, and everyone lives happily ever after. Fantastic. Red, are you ready to give us a 30-second summary of Clueless, the movie? Absolutely. Okay. And go. Cher, a virgin who can't drive, is used to having the world revolve around her, despite being completely unaware of men wooing her, gay men not wooing her, and falling in love with her own stepbrother.pornhub.com. After finding a romantic... (laughs) 
match for Vizzini, and thus improving everyone's grades, she condescends to try and help new student Ty fit in. Being Brittany Murphy, Ty excels, and after surviving being held over a railing in a local mall, exceeds Cher in every way. When Ty falls in love with Josh, Cher exclaims, bros before O's, and the Lannisters are a happy couple. The end. <laughs> Okay. Red, are there any fun facts from Clueless or from Emma that we ought to know? Yes. I am probably going to disappoint you here because I was so much more curious about Emma than I was about Clueless. So I I have have quite a few things. Um, Something... I think Maggie sent this to me, but despite being published anonymously, this is the second book along with Pride and Prejudice where Jane Austen has a character named Jane who everyone agrees is hot. Like they're just <laughs> the like, you know how Janes girl. are so hot? I feel like that's really <laughs> her. She's like, I'll do these really popular books and we'll establish that Janes are hot. A true queen. Well done. I respect it. Like, I think we should we should bring that back. We should all be writing ourselves as hot side characters <laughs> who are like perfect in every way. I agree. Let's end the era of the self-insert protagonist and bring back the era of hot side character who everyone agrees has the moral high ground named after yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So I was also just curious how it was received at the time. And so I I looked up a couple of reviews. So this is from Maria Edgeworth, author of Belinda, to whom Austin had sent a copy There was no story in it, except that Miss Emma found that the man whom she designed for Harriet's lover was an admirer of her own. And he was affronted at being refused by Emma and Harriet, wore the willow and smooth, thin water gruel is, according to Emma's father's opinion, a very good thing. And it is very difficult to make a cook understand what you mean by smooth, thin water gruel, exclamation point, exclamation point. I just love that 200 years later, I'm having... The same reaction <laughs> as the author of Belinda. <laughs> I was also just like, what is happening with this school? And I was like, you know what? You know what? I just don't understand it. 200 years ago, I would have known immediately <laughs> what this was. And it was so validating that Maria Edgeworth was on my side here. <laughs> okay, this is perhaps the funniest thing. This is from Clueless. The funniest thing I've ever come across in my life. <clears throat> Alicia Silverstone actually did not know how to correctly pronounce Haitians in the classroom scene. (laughs) Director Amy Heckerling told the crew not to correct her. Can you imagine her just being like, "Mm, mmm, (laughs) mmm. Just like making eye contact with everybody in the room because she liked it so much and wanted it to be in the film. That's perfect. I love it. Perfect. The entirety of Emma is justified just because I came across this one fact. This is just astonishing to me. The entirety of Emma is justified. Red really did not enjoy this. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was so, so. uh, Yeah. So that was absolutely delightful to me. So those are my fun facts. Alicia Silverstone in the role of Cher Horowitz is one of those like singular casting choices of such perfection. Mm -hmm. It's like it does not matter anything else Alicia Silverstone does for the rest of her life. She will always be Cher Horowitz to me. And it's nice to hear that there was a little piece of her. Yeah, little pieces of her that are like very true that were <laughs> kept in the movie. If you if the listener hasn't seen Clueless recently, she pronounces it Haitians <laughs> as she is giving her speech in front of the classroom, which is a hilarious comedic choice, I thought at the moment. <laughs> she came and spoke at my middle school. As a vegetarian activist, 
that is the cadence of her speech. Like, that's not an act. That is how she talked at that time. Mm. Because that was like a year later. And she came and told us about not eating meat, which I did not listen to. I was going to say, were you inspired by that as much as the clothing or? No, I was just like, Cher Horowitz is here. (laughs) (laughs) I think I tried to be vegetarian for like a week. uh, But, you know, I was in seventh grade or sixth grade. Like I wasn't, that wasn't going to stick. So. There are some big differences between Emma and Clueless. What are the things that stick out to you guys as like, here are the choices that Amy Heckerling made where I feel the work of an adaptation at play? So the biggest thing is Jane Fairfax is missing. Hot Jane is gone. And I think Hot Jane being gone is probably very smart for the adaptation because it's just an added character. There are two, like, she's working with so many different characters and so many different. And the thing about this book is there are so many different subplots that are all weird, like, relationship subplots that I can understand it. But I actually think that Hot Jane um, is a big piece of the puzzle for how Emma turns the corner and starts to see that she is arrogant and making bad choices for those people around her. Like, she needs to see someone hotter than her (laughs) (laughs) who has the moral high ground, as Maggie pointed out. And I think Cher is lacking that. But I also think Cher is a kinder, gentler version of Emma. Yeah. Like, so maybe she doesn't have as far to travel. Removing Jane puts the onus entirely on Josh to, like, mm-hmm. teach Cher. In the book, it's that she's mean to Ms. Bates right. at this picnic. Oh, yeah, that too, right? There's a missing Bates. Well, I think that that beat is actually adapted because she is rude to Lucy. She tells her, like, I don't speak Mexican. And she's oh, like, right. He's, she's from El Salvador. What are you doing? And that's when he kind of, like, lays into her. And I do, you know, of course— love a moment where a white girl gets yelled at for being racist by a guy she thinks is hot. Like, that's nice. But it also, like, inspires the big change in her where she starts, like, volunteering with Miss Geis and, like, everything. Like, that's her big epiphany moment in terms of, like, making herself into a better person. But I think also removing Jane removes some of the more cruel female competition feelings That I wonder, so there's still the female competition thing between her and Amber, where like they are very bitchy to each other and mean about each other's bodies and the way that they look. But having Jane in, I think would have, it would have been hard to avoid even uglier incarnations of that Mm. with somebody who, and I wonder if like it undercuts a little bit of the depth of complicating our central protagonist, if it does save us from some of the, like, uglier ways that that could be modernized. Yeah, that's a great point. I can't prove it, but, like, that was... I was like, okay, well, maybe if you're going to cut someone... Because instead of Jane, you have Dion, who's not really a character in the book. Like, she doesn't have, like, a best care friend who's her equal. She's not Miss Weston. I mean, she's, oh, she's clearly Mrs. Weston, right? The Dion. Yeah, you're right, because she's already mad. Because then also yeah. there's that, like... There's that old married couple vibe between Dion and Murray. Yeah. (laughs) You're right. You're absolutely right. right. Yeah. No, you're right. She's Mrs. Weston. I don't know why in my brain I was like, married people don't count. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean. I mean, there is also the thing, though, where they kind of, because we don't get the interiority, because it's, well, you do get some voiceover. But I think a lot of the times, like, you get Cher's ideas 
from her talking to Dion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really does feel like it's more just it was something that would happen inside Emma's head, but now they have each other to bounce stuff off of so that we can hear what they're thinking about certain things. There's also, I mean, Dion and Murray are much more present on page in a lot of ways than mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Weston are, especially because Mr. and Mrs. Weston's whole, like, identity in the book is, like, to matchmake Emma. Yeah. In a lot of ways with Frank Churchill, who is Christian in our play. I love the modernization of Christian. Me too. So in the removal of Jane, we have the removal of why Frank Churchill or Christian is off limits to Emma, who's not available. Because in the book, they're secretly engaged in just waiting for him or like his aunt to die so that he can get approval, basically. And in the movie, he is gay. And he is so beautiful and so charming. And he drives a car that Red hates that I think is wonderful. Uh, Excuse me. (laughs) I hate it because my grandmother, who loves everything and everybody, only hates one thing on this planet. And that is the Nash Metropolitan. And as a car person, <laughs> she... That's a weird thing for a grandma to hate. It is less so Apparently when you know... it's a bad car. When Yes. Oh, it's an awful car. When you know that she uh, had to drive two of them. <laughs> two of them. Um, the, they had a car. My grandfather worked at a heavy machinery a company called Drosher, and he got a company car. And so that was the car that she had to drive. And there was one net Nash Metropolitan, and it broke down immediately. And then he rolled up... Another day with another Nash Metropolitan. And by both of their accounts, it was the maddest she has ever been in their entire marriage. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a hereditary hatred. It's epigenetic. Like (laughs) This is nature, not nurture. (laughs) Uh, Listen, my grandmother is the most important person to me. And if she is only going to choose one thing to hate, I'm going to have her back on it. But one thing I will say (laughs) is famously, the car was so unsolid that the convertible which is the one that's in this movie yeah the frame bends and then you can't close the doors and if you notice the passenger side door never closes even in the version they were able to get for oh the oh my movie. god because <laughs> they're pieces of trash they're terrible cars that is so funny funny i just love that christian walks in with his like high-waisted like 1940s looking nightclub outfits and Cher is like, that seems heterosexual to me. Yeah. <laughs> I love rocking that. out to the mighty, mighty Boston. Yes. I know. <laughs> the uh, naivete I, is actually something that I didn't catch as somebody in high school. The fact that Ty really does have like more experience with boys, more experience with drugs. Like she's mm-hmm. she's somebody who, like, yes, she's more naive in this very thin slice of life that is upscale high school bubbles but it's it's so expected as somebody in their 30s watching this like of of course she's going to surpass Cher like Cher is so naive to the world and does not know anything and that's it's such a perfect example that both Cher and Dion are just both like he's gay like they're like the last people to know (laughs) in the entire school I love the scene where they realize that or they're told that he's gay um, mm-hmm. by Murray, who knows more gay references than, like, <laughs> I just, Streisand ticket holding, friend of Dorothy. Like, I'm yes. sorry, but the boys I went to high school with did not have that kind of, like, <laughs> gay Oscar reference. Oscar Wilde reading. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Donald Faison, obviously, like such a chart, like what a charismatic actor, but like Mm -hmm. fantastic. He's hysterical in that role with the back and forth between like with the different code switching that he does with the way that he talks Mm -hmm. is so funny and so appealing. To me, the greatest improvement that Clueless offers upon the source material is Ty. And some of that is by merit of the fact that Brittany Murphy was like an incredible talent. And this was just like such a memorable breakout role for her. And she's perfect. And she's the perfect combination of vulnerable and knowing and like, I don't She's wonderful in this movie. But also, like Red said, she's more of a normal teenager in the way that she's written. And Mm -hmm. it makes it clearer that Cher is like a highly specialized machine for a very specific environment that is not applicable anywhere else in the world. (laughs) Notable when she's like, why would I learn how to park? Everywhere you go has valet. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I think that the way that Ty is written to make her more complicated then Harriet was, is the greatest improvement on the source material where they took that character and the reasons she like adores Cher are still the same and like emotionally consistent with why Harriet adores Emma. Like you've been so nice to me, showing me the way, et cetera. But when she turns on her, it's like more pointed. And I like that her claws are sharper and it makes that character more powerful, more interesting. And it makes the central character... Like, it disempowers her more in a way that I think is appealing and strong. Like, I like that writing of it. I also think that one of the good things about Clueless is the relationship between the the whole character of Josh. And while he, you know, is a stepbrothery kind of needles her a bit, he's not mean or, like, as harsh as Knightley can be in the book. And I think Knightley is harsher in the book because he's a cipher. Like, we don't we don't see him other than in the moments where he kind of gives Emma a little bit of a spanking. And so I think the relationship between Josh and Emma is a, is a softer experience, especially in the car where when Josh brings his date to pick her up after having been, you know... A- his date who misquotes Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> but I know Mel Gibson and... <laughs> Um, in that moment, right, Cher gets a win and is, like, charming to Josh. Yeah. And she doesn't get – Emma doesn't get a lot of wins with Knightley. That's so funny. I regarded Knightley as being, like, a little bit more affectionate. But I think that might be um, a daddy issue. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, something for your therapist. Mine, too. Like, long pause. <laughs> That's a me problem. <laughs> Like, but when you think about it, it's like, would I want my daughter to have, like, a relationship like the one Cher has with Josh or the one that Emma has with Knightley? I think, like, there's really no question there. Yeah. I would prefer that her buttons be installed slightly differently than mine. I will say, I think I like Knightley better than I like Josh, not just because of aforementioned issues, Mm -hmm. but because he gives me, like, Roy Kent vibes instead of, like annoying college student vibes like he's um Mm. like he's gruff and he's harsh but he's always telling the truth and he's always telling the truth in service to emma like it's not like he's just saying it to be shitty to her when i was reading him i really felt like he's saying it because he's just like you're a person i care about so i'll tell you the truth that's a bad idea (laughs) and you're meddling with (laughs) shit you don't understand and i'm pretty sure frank and jane have something going on (laughs) and i like that 
for what he lacks in nicety, he has in honesty and ultimately in affection for Emma. Like, he is in love with her and, like... Well, yeah. I don't know. I, I forgave him his gruffness the same way that I would forgive, like, a Roy Kent kind of character for his gruffness because it feels like an extension of a personality that is bound to honesty. I think that that's why Emma, in a lot of ways, why Emma remains my favorite Austen novel. He feels the most heroic in a lot of ways uh, of all of her heroes. And, I mean, there is no moment that I love more than when Knightley protects Miss Bates in the book. And it's so clear that he is just noble. And he's, like, acting on the side of right. Yeah. And it feels harsh when you're, you know, Emma has to take that knock. But there's this adage in romance that, like, no matter how bad a hero is, he has to be willing to go into a burning building to save a basket of puppies. Mm-hmm. And, like, Knightley would save a basket of puppies from a burning building without question. And she, she was being a little bitch. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about it. Oh, it's so cruel. It's such a burn. Yeah. Like, she's being super mean to somebody who's, like, okay, she's a little annoying, but she's not, like, a bad person. Like, she does not deserve this. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she just, like, loves Jane and that bothers you is a you problem. <laughs> Are you guys doing another Emma adaptation? Yeah, we're going to do the two movies, the Gwyneth Paltrow and the Anya uh, Taylor, or whatever, the the Queen's Gambit lady. Do you have a favorite? I think the Anya Taylor-Joy one is the most like Emma in my head. Oh, mm. interesting. Oh, we haven't watched it yet, but I'm so excited. They play her really deeply. Red, she is going to be like Emma in your head, too. I'm so curious. I think of her as the character on Queen's Gambit primarily. Yeah. So yeah. I'm very excited about that one. I can't wait for you to watch it. I can't wait to hear that episode because there is a moment at the end that is a truly what the fuck moment. And I <laughs> want to hear all about how you <laughs> Interestingly, it feels like Emma is more easily adapted than Pride and Prejudice to me Mm. because – and maybe it's because it is a kind of more – maybe there's less nuance in the characters. I don't know. Mm. I think it doesn't have as many like micro steps Mm. of like development as Pride and Prejudice does. And I think that's one of the reasons people get so like – then 2005 Pride and Prejudice is like the cliff notes. And you're like, yeah, dude, it's a movie. Um, but like, <laughs> because you miss so many of those micro steps. And I think that is. But the hand flex <laughs> is great. Okay. The hand flex is hot. And we didn't talk about it in the podcast. We what? did about it. I recently just found out that that was improvised. Stop it. That was just Matthew McFadden. McFadden is the best. Being hot. So. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I know people hate him. That's fine. Whatever. You're wrong. You need to like add on like a two minute. <laughs> drop. Let's just do it now. You could drop it in. <laughs> and Emma, all the changes are like big changes. It feels like like when there are moments of change, they're very notable. They're much more dramatic. And so like I do think that it lends itself to adaptation a lot better because even when you cut a whole main character out, like poor hot Jane Fairfax. <laughs> you still get the emotional beats without all of these little tiny, like, conversations that build and build and build and build and build. Like, it's less about slowly changing someone's mind than someone dramatically realizing that they've been wrong the whole time. 
Mm-hmm. Which I guess in both cases, it's about someone realizing they've been wrong the whole time. But it's like Darcy and Liz- Elizabeth are more stubborn and Emma is more like effusive. It feels like her sways between the way that she feels are greater. And that lends itself to a better movie. Agreed. What frustrated me in Pride and Prejudice is there's a lot of characters who have multiple purposes, but one of those purposes is to be very funny indeed. And I think the type of character they are, so let's say Mr. Collins is the one that annoys me a lot. I I think he's supposed to provide comic relief in the book. He has a narrative purpose with respect to Charlotte and their relationship, but also he's supposed to be very funny. And you have to reach really hard for him to just be innately funny. I think you have to reach very far for him to be innately funny. I thought he was hilarious. (laughs) I feel very strongly about this. Humor is one of the most contextual things that exists. If I go from here to Brazil, jokes that I think are hilarious just aren't going to work now. And if you go back 200 years, jokes that are amazing at the time just aren't as strong. And I think the choice that the director made in Clueless to update the father figure... yeah who's supposed to be very funny, but is just so annoying in the original, is great. It's just like, okay, he can still serve the purpose as the father, but also, when it comes to the humor, we're going to do something completely different that fits the time period better. Yeah. And I think people are so afraid to change Jane Austen, especially when it comes to Pride and Prejudice, that nobody's willing to take that type of risk. Mm. And they do it here, and it pays off hugely. And I would love to see more of that in Jane Austen adaptations. There's truly nothing more 90s than a completely cutthroat asshole litigator. Like, that is, like, the era of the asshole lawyer being, like, at his zenith. And, like, you're right. Like, he's he does... He's hilarious and he serves the function of being like kind of annoying to other people, but is a complete reimagining of him. And wrapped up in himself, right? Like, I think the thing when you talk about Mr. Collins or Mr. Elton, right? Yeah. And we haven't talked about Elton at all and how Hackerling totally shifts. It's the same story, but just a completely different character, right? Yeah. But in both of those characters, what you see is this kind of Regency era and and really of a time, as you said, Red, view of bowing and scraping to the aristocracy or to money or to gentry mm-hmm. as being laughable. And you're right that that is a time problem. There are, two, you know, 200 years between us. It's also about culture in a lot of ways. Like, British culture is really, really class-based. Like, you would never cross a line into that world, right? And so the people who do bow and scrape to get access to it are made fun of in Austin because we all know, ha-ha, viewing them, that they'll never get there. It doesn't matter who they marry or, or what happens. They'll always be down here, you know, with us viewers. And I think that that is something that doesn't translate to American modern cinema. And that's why Brittany Murphy's character is so well done, I think, because there's never a moment of class there, right? What's weird about it is, and I had this moment where I was like, does she go to school in Beverly Hills? Like, is she from, like, she goes to this posh school? Like, what's, Mm -hmm. where does she live? What's her family like? Which is all stuff that Austin would have given us. I mean, the introduction to Harriet Smith is, poor thing, she doesn't have any parents. She lives at this, like, you know, orphan school. And Hackerling removes all of that, which is really... Smart, because it can't translate. Yeah. 
And Elton is a good example, right? Elton is rich and powerful and, like, supposed to be the perfect match for Cher, he says in the car. Like, yeah. obviously, it's you and me. But, like, Mr. Elton in the book is not the perfect match for Emma. He is not on her level. No, he's, like, a grasping. That's his whole deal is, like, he's just trying to marry a rich girl. Yeah. I really enjoyed Mrs. Elton. She's missing. Well, she's Amber, the annoying woman where you're like, oh, God. You're just <laughs> 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 she's like a Monet. <laughs> um, but I love the way that he is done. And I think in the movie, and I think updating him to be like kind of sexually harassy, like yeah, like rapey vibes is accurate. And well, it's accurate in the book too, right? True. There's the moment in the carriage that sort of elides what's happening, but I think, but you'll see most adaptations read it mm. that way. Mm. And because I think it is that way. Ugh. I do love that that happens in a car is an update to the carriage. Like that's just such a like, yeah, yeah okay, like you did it and it's cute and I like it. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> and then she gets, she gets robbed in the... Oh, yeah. Another sort of great moment for Cher to have to like be Cher. Yeah. <laughs> I forget the name of the designer. She's like, you can't make me lie down in this. This is a Mariah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's just so much in that movie that's like so deeply quotable. Are there any other like major differences that you feel like we haven't talked about or updates that you want to address? The scene where Harriet Smith gets attacked. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it's gone. It happens in the mall. Oh, I guess it does happen in the So in the book, the people who attack her. See, I didn't put it together. That's the moment. She's attacked by what people who are referred to as a racial slur in the book that we'll just call travelers or whatever. And like that gives her the cachet where everyone's asked, like, right. It kind of sets her ego on fire and Frank Churchill saves her, etc. And in the mall, as she's talking to these two, quote, Barneys. What does that even mean? Is it like you're fucking lame? Like you're stupid? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's like slang that was invented by the movie. That then we just all agreed that's what that meant. But like <laughs> dudes who were not worth her time, and they're like pretending, like they're holding her over the edge. And then Josh saves uh, Christian saves does. her, or Chris. I'm sorry, Christian, Christian saves, saves her. her. And um, I remember that was always a moment in the movie where I was like, God, that's like a lot. I don't know why that needs to be like that. And now having read the book, I'm like, oh, I see. Now it's like, see. it's a beat for beat. This is her being attacked by like the poor people that they are afraid of in the movie. It's changed to just be like two dudes trying to get attention in the worst, most stupid way possible. But a more believable attack, yes. right? Like a more, like, again, takes all of the you know, racism from yeah. the book. It's true. They're just like dumb teenage boys, which if this movie has it against any group of people, it's just dumb teenage boys. I think that that's acceptable. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Like reading the book and having seen Clueless so many times, I think it was really easy for me to identify the moments that are in the movie because I'm so familiar with that. So when Harriet shows up with the things that she saved from her courtship with, well, her supposed courtship with Elton. And I was like, like in the movie, which she throws, she wants to throw the cassette tape in the fire. (laughs) And the portrait. Yes. And the picture, like down to the photo, I saved it because you took it because you drew it. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I really did like that the movie upgraded was that the box of things 
that Ty slash Harriet kept was so pathetic in the book. Like, it made me so sad to see the box of things. And, like, the things that Ty had were just much more... They were more relatable, understandable things than just, like, a used pencil. The tape. That no, Yeah, like, I was just like, no, Harriet, don't keep that. Why were you holding on to that? I know, it just made me feel so sad in the book. And they were just a little... A little less pathetic in the, and I mean they're they're actually completely relatable. Like the, if you're in love with somebody in high school, yeah. mm-hmm. and that you would keep these type of things. I was I was completely like, yes, these were the type of things that many of my friends would have had from their crush, or not many, but some. You know, you don't the mm-hmm. towel that someone. Okay, that's fine. I I still think it's pretty pathetic. <laughs> the towel was a little, but it was better. It was directionally Slightly. correct. Yeah. Um. <laughs> do you guys have any petty differences you feel like we should cover? I have a very small one, which is Please. the character of Mr. Martin is updated to Travis Birkenstock, who I would die for. Mm-hmm. And I think upon having read Emma, it is unnecessary to have made Travis get sober mm. and motivated in order to earn tithe and shares approval. One of the things I liked about the book is that Emma was just wrong all along. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was always a good match. Mr. Knightley told him so or told her so and like she just didn't listen. And I liked it in the movie when I saw it by itself. But like if you're adapting Emma, why does Mr. Martin have to change? Mr. Martin never did anything wrong. He was always nice. Just like Travis was always nice and cool to Ty and like into the things she was into and like just wanted to compliment her and be nice to her and show concern for her. And like he didn't need to. Who cares? He smokes some pot. Like whatever. He's got a lot of bongs. He doesn't need to donate them to the Pismo Beach Relief Fund. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. The Pismo Beach Relief Fund. I forgot about that. That was in my trivia section. I skipped over it. So just in case people don't know, I went to college near Pismo Beach and I was like, what the hell was that? Uh, The Pismo Beach disaster never happened. That's not a thing (laughs) that ever took place. And there's apparently a wide history of Pismo Beach being referenced, which several things I read credited that to it being basically on the way to like Hearst Castle. So mm-hmm. like rich movie directors and stuff would like it was like a stop along the road. That's so funny. Mm-hmm. Apparently for decades it was known for clams. It was known for having clams. And in a Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes cartoon, Pismo Beach is referenced. And that's, like, what it was known for for decades. And since then, it's just been, like, a thing that people reference in movies. It's like Stanley. There's always, there's, like, a long-standing tradition in film to name therapists Stanley. Mm. I didn't know that. that. Yeah. So if you're ever watching a movie and there's a therapist, the odds are his name is Stanley. That's so funny. I was genuinely interested. Like, what was the Pismo? I should have known about this. It wasn't that long after I was there. My husband grew up right there and was like, what? That's not a thing. <laughs> we watched it last week. So. I was going to say the same thing that Robert Martin and, and Travis, right? Birkin and Travis. <laughs> of course. I think for me, it was more that I felt like in the book, Robert Martin is set up as like, Knightley loves him. Like, Knightley is like, this is a decent man who has a decent farm and a decent job. Like, he's a tenant farmer on Knightley's estate. Um, And, like, his irritation about Emma and Robert Martin 
and Harriet is so clear from the jump. That's that's actually where it comes up, like that men of sense do not want silly wives. And Robert is so admirable. And then Travis comes through and he's so kind and such a sweetheart. But I do think he's sort of silly. I think for me, like it, it feels like he could have been taken a little more seriously by someone. Mm. Like there was, here's what it is. There was no one else in the cast who was like, you're missing it. Like Travis is a, is a decent, cool dude who, yeah, you know, just isn't up to your standard. Yeah, yeah. Share. No, that's a really good point. I wanted somebody to like tag that in a lot of ways because I think that's important. It's also another moment where Knightley feels heroic. Yeah. For my petty difference, since doing this podcast, Maggie has pointed out a bunch of things to me where she was like, that's the author responding to some feedback. <laughs> uh, I always I always hyper focus in on numbers when I'm reading things. And Maggie's always mad at me for doing that uh, because <laughs> she knows that I'm going to be reading her. Because I, I don't understand numbers. That's what it's really going on here. <laughs> so if, in Pride and Prejudice, which came out before this, she said so-and-so has an income of 5,000 pounds and 10,000 pounds for the numbers. That's Bingley and Darcy. Bingley, 5,000. Darcy, 10,000. Yes. Yeah. And then in this book, the number of 10,000 pounds comes up again. Yes. And this is how Jane Austen phrases it. The charming Augusta Hawkins, in addition to all the usual advantages of perfect beauty and merit, was in possession of an independent fortune of so many thousands as would always be called 10. Like, listen, guys, they're rich. That's what 10,000 pounds <laughs> means. They have enough money to be rich. We don't need to think about it beyond that. Yeah, I used round numbers, okay? Like, I could just see, like, her responding to letters, like, it's so weird that they all had, and she's just like, you know, 10,000 pounds, a lot of money. Did you guys do the math out? You must have done the math out in your Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking. 295,000 U.S. dollars when adjusted for inflation and then converted to U.S. dollars is 10,000 pounds. That was 1813. I haven't redone it for 1815. I'm assuming there were no large uh, inflationary episodes in those two years. Yeah. So basically, like, they're like tech workers. Yeah. (laughs) Like, they have tech money. (laughs) 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 Great. Well, we're at that point where we have to make a legally binding decision of which is better, Jane Austen's Emma or Clueless. And I, I don't know, guys. I know, <laughs> I know I have a lot of like personal connection and that makes me biased, but I, I think in this case, I'm going to go Clueless. I think it's more enjoyable. I think we owe our thanks to Miss Austen for her fabulous work to make Clueless possible. (laughs) But I loved Clueless with incredible depth and longevity before I had ever read Emma and realized that it was also an homage to something else. And that just makes me like it more. And so in this case, I've been really reluctant to ever say something is better than Pride and Prejudice, the book, because it has obviously spawned so much of all of romance that like it feels wild to be like yeah anything's better than that because it is like okay thank you you gave us like everything emma even though i liked the book emma better than i like pride and prejudice i really love this movie so much that i have to go with the movie it's perfectly cast its soundtrack is all hits no skips oh the soundtrack is oh my god i had it on cassette just banger after banger (laughs) great The acting is perfect. The timing is great. The fact that they don't try to make it timeless, the fact that they like stick so much to their era 
makes it more timeless in a weird way because it's never trying to be something that it's not. And so it makes it more enjoyable later on where you get to laugh at a Polly Shore movie reference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I, I just think it's great. And Amy Heckerling did an amazing job. Yes. I want Amy Heckerling to make every adaptation now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I want her to turn every classic into, like, a teen <laughs> movie. I think, uh, for me, it comes down to having gone through so many Jane Austen adaptations at this point. This is the best modernization yes. of any Austen. Yes. And she really takes the risk and changes things. You know, she doesn't defer to Austen. It takes guts because, yes, you're going to be compared to Austen and the choices that she made. But this is just the most perfectly updated where she really did think about what was necessary, what she felt she wanted to change, what works in 1994 versus what works in 1815. And I think it's one of the best adaptations we have ever covered on this yeah. because it took some huge risks and succeeded at so many of them while also still being true to the original. Like, it's not something that completely jettisons the source material. Like, it is something that really does, I think, capture the core of what was good about the original while making it accessible to modern audiences and also, like, taking it in a different direction and exceeding in a way that the original didn't. I think it's such an exceptional beat for it's it's beat for beat. I mean, it you can really see in in a way you did Bridget Jones, right? When you did mm -hmm. Pride and Prejudice, yeah. Bridget Jones does not feel like as seamlessly like you you really have to unpeel it to see where all the the adaptation comes, and that's not the case here. I will say this: I am going to agree that it is clu that Clueless is more fun and more enjoyable, but. As a romance novelist, I feel I need to say the romance in Emma is far and away better than the romance in Clueless. I think that's fair. There is not near enough air given to Cher and Josh in... And I... Oh, but I will say this. Here's... um, And it's not so petty, but a thing I didn't... I'm not great. I'm not crazy about. Yeah. The age difference between Cher and Josh is not the greatest. I thought the same thing. She's 16, right? Uh-huh. How old do you think he is, though? Oh, I think he's... In his 20s. 20? No, so he is a college freshman, canonically, in the movie. Oh, he's a and freshman? Is he really? Yes. Oh. He's right, which I'm convinced that was changed late, because he's clearly a law student. He's clearly Paul Rudd. <laughs> <laughs> I will have you know he's three years younger than Stacey Dash in this movie, who is 29. Fully a 29-year-old woman. Wow. We didn't talk about poor Stacey Dash and how that went south. This was her peak, and let's just address her here. <laughs> She's never done anything since. <laughs> but Sarah, I had the same note literally an hour before we recorded. And then I was like, how old is he? And I Googled it. They mention he is a college freshman, which makes no sense. But like he's doing doc. Yeah. Review. Yes. Like I think mm -hmm. Red's exactly right where they got the feedback where they were like, she's underage. He can't be that much older than her. And they were like, fine, he's 18. They're definitely going to do it later. And yeah. I didn't care at all in 1995 when I was in high right. school and watched this movie 17 times. I care a lot now. I'm like, oh. 
this is not great. And also, it would make more sense. Knightley is canonically significantly older than Emma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I still feel like it's creepier because I see them. Yeah. Yeah. But he's supposed, he's canonically 18 and she's 16. And I'm like, they're both teenagers versus 21 versus 37. And I thought about that and I didn't come to any conclusions that I'm willing to say out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Into a microphone being distributed over the internet. Yeah. I I never love age difference stuff. The power dynamic thing of it is so weird. But I am more forgiving of it in a historical setting than I am in a contemporary setting. And so there were just like, there were certain things like them being step siblings and him being older that are harder to swallow in Clueless than they are in Emma. Harder to swallow in 2022 than they were in 1995 too. Yeah, even. And so like, that is true. So sorry that I had to bring it all down there, but no, no, it's fair and it's worth mentioning. (laughs) So for me, From a purely romance perspective, Emma wins. From a whole hog perspective, it's a clueless. Clueless for the win. Ekes it out. I think that's fair. Yeah, I don't even feel strongly about the romance of Josh and Cher in Clueless. Like, I think it would be possible to remove that and still have a great movie. Mm. A thousand percent. Which is crazy in a movie that's supposed to be adapting a famous romance novel. If you ask any romance reader, and I would assume, you know, Emma fan, what's the line from Emma? The famous line from Emma is, if I loved you less, I could talk about it more. Yeah. Which is like, like, Knightley says, I will say, we watched the, I don't want to spoil the Anya Taylor-Joy movie for you, but my husband and I just recently watched it because I was prepping. I was doing lots of prep for you. Thank you. And uh, he'd never seen it. He'd never seen any version of Emma. And we got, and that line exists in that, that version. And, you know, Knightley says it. And my husband, my, like, very stern husband, sighed. So, like, (laughs) because it's so romantic when Knightley finally allows himself to feel a feeling. And that's, I think, maybe, Maggie, what you were getting at earlier with the Josh character. Like, he feels too many feelings. Yeah. Through the whole movie. Yeah. He needs to bottle them up more. Yeah, so that when they come out, it's like, oh, (laughs) it gives you that the Roy Kent thing where you're like, you've been so gruff and now you're so affectionate. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Last question about Emma. Who would you rather have affectionately judge your teenage behavior? Mm -hmm. Josh from the movie or Mr. Knightley? I'm going to answer first. Because I feel like I have the least burdened answer. <laughs> I'm just like, I've got a bunch of uncles who are like Mr. Knightley. I had that experience. <laughs> and uh, did nothing for me. Not a fan. <laughs> um, are they single? <laughs> whereas Josh is just like uh, some older brother type who I would have this kind. And I would, I've, I feel the love coming from that more in a, in a non-romantic sense. So easy, definitely Josh. I'll leave it to you two now. I have to go with Mr. Knightley. Like, I think that <laughs> he's really hot and that he would run into that burning building and that he would look me right in the face and love me in the face of all of my own bullshit. And I think that there is nothing more romantic than someone who sees you in your fullness and in your flaws and loves you, not despite of, but because of all of those things. And Mr. Knightley is that kind of person. And so I would rather have him rake me over the coals and then make out with me than Josh literally any day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Badly done, Emma. Just a very (laughs) 
harshly installed button. Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> so, Sarah, is there anything you are reading or watching right now that you feel like everyone else should get into? Like, what are you obsessed with right now? I just finished The Bear. Oh, yeah, the Hulu show. I don't know if anybody Mm. has talked about this here, but man, did I love every second of that very stressful, very amazing show. So, yeah, as basic as that seems right now, considering how much the the Twitter loves that show. I haven't seen it. It's about a chef, right? He's a five-star chef, and he, he inherits this, like, sandwich shop in Chicago. It's so atmospheric. It's a love letter to Chicago. The cast is... Remarkable. There's an episode, there's a full episode of it that's done in one take. Like they're just like, it feels like it is the best of every, of everything. Nice. And I am currently reading Allie Hazelwood's Love on the Brain, which is a romance novel that will be out that is probably in stores right now. And Allie is fabulous and writes about heroines who are in science and I think she she talked about somebody who understands how to make a romance really be romantic. Mm. So. Red, what about you? I've been watching this show on Prime Video called A League of Their Own, yes. and I think it is great. <laughs> it is so good. I really, of course, enjoyed the original, and the new one is gorgeous. That's Honestly, the thing that stands out to me is the it's not it's not super accurate to the time period, but it's just so fun and so beautiful and such fun characters. And I recommend watching it. Maggie, you have to do something different now. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Oh, you're so mean. <laughs> he stole your answer, Maggie. He knows because I'm like obsessed with that show. Um, a League of the, Their Own, the movie. <laughs> I don't know that there's a single movie that had more of an effect on my life than that one. I saw it when I was in third grade. I played softball until I was in college because of it. Aww. I joke that it's what made me buy because of Gina Davis. <laughs> I love it so much. The series is such a beautiful update of it. It balances corrective things like actually including queer and black people in it with fan service. Like there are so many references to the movie and every single one of them is done in a way that changes it and makes it fresher and newer, but still gives you the same feeling as when someone yells, there's no crying in baseball Mm -hmm. (laughs) or when they sing the song. There's just like so many beautiful, perfect moments in that series. I can't wait for season two. I think it's extraordinary. And then also, I read a book called Shudder by Ramona Emerson that is like part ghost story, part res coming of age story, part murder mystery, part like organized crime mystery. It is so many elements that should not all work together. It's a debut author. And she manages to balance all of these things at the same time. So it's about a crime scene photographer who sees ghosts. Like she knows when someone has died immediately because she sees them. And sometimes they try to talk to her and sometimes she's unable to like keep the guard up. And there's a woman particularly who like is kind of letting all the other ones in. And so her life is getting more and more chaotic as she is sort of like brushing against corruption in the police force that she's not officially a part of. She's a crime scene photographer, but she's not an officer. Mm. It is so fun and so good. I've been having trouble getting into anything lately, and I did not have trouble getting into that. It just like right from go, although it is very gory. So if you're like a little, like, it starts off 
with the worst of a scene of just like a woman's body in like a million pieces on a highway mm. being described. And she has to photograph every single one of them. Oh, no. Red, also, you'd love it. Every one of her childhood memories is in a chapter headed with the kind of camera she was using at that time. Oh, I'm I'm literally going to look at the table of contents, but I won't read the book. <laughs> yeah, I think it's too scary for you, but you would love the photography. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Sarah, Thank you so much for being our first like true romance expert on this, our Jane Austen season. Like, Yes, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and I hope I did her justice as, you know, without her, we, none of us would be here. So yeah, I was so excited to have you on specifically to talk about an Austen property. So thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Where can people find you and buy all of your books in the McLeanverse online? So you can find me at sarahmclean.net. But if you like hearing about romance and you like talking about romance, you can find me every Wednesday on my podcast, Faded Mates, which you can learn more about wherever you are listening to Failure to Adopt. Just Type in Faded Mates and you'll find us. We're out every Wednesday. There is a daddy episode. You can go listen to it if you'd like. We did not talk about Nightly and now I feel like we need to like do a whole <laughs> addendum to it. Or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and I write historical romances. So while Austin was a contemporary romance novelist during her time, I write historical romances set in times closer to her than to us. Uh, My most recent book is Heartbreaker. It is out now. It's the second in a series about a Victorian-era girl gang who enjoy um, kicking ass and smashing patriarchy. And um, yeah, that's called Heartbreaker. You can find it wherever books are sold. I should mention that Bombshell, the first book in the Hell's Bells series, super fun, super sexy. And it's like... Do you want the vibes of historical romance, but the like feelings you have now about gender (laughs) equality to be (laughs) addressed? Then do I have the book for you? If you like a book where men get justifiably punched in the face. Yes, I do. (laughs) I love that. I am for you. (laughs) But also like smash in other ways. So Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been Failure to Adapt. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked us, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. If you did not like us, this has been the Joe Rogan Experience. If you want to help us keep making episodes of this podcast, you can support this podcast with your money at patreon.com slash failure to adapt podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Failure Adapt. Links to all of these are in the show notes. Happy reading. Happy watching.